outside of Christ, Paul is the most respected teacher, preacher, leader the church has ever had. His writings and advice on godly living cover 14 of the 27 books of the New Testament. If you throw Hebrews in there, and there are some reasons to think that Paul may have had a hand in writing that. His advice and his ministry also dominate 20 of the 28 chapters of the book of Acts. His wisdom and knowledge of the Old Testament, of the scripture applied through the life of Christ is unparalleled. Now, if you think about it, Paul was a lot like Christ in the way he went about doing things because Paul, like Christ, invested time in training disciples. Christ proclaimed the kingdom of God to thousands. He was followed by 120. He gathered 12 to him for even closer counsel. And then he invested in three. Paul likewise proclaimed Christ to thousands throughout Judea, Asia Minor, Greece, Southern Europe, and Italy. And he was followed by a tight group of disciples, including Erastus and Luke that we know by name. And he invested in three, Tychicus, Titus, and Timothy. All of these three men carried out Christ's work through Paul's instruction, through his leadership, and continued Paul's work in different places. Now, we have letters that Paul wrote to two of them, the letters to Timothy and the letter to Titus. Paul gives us a great example because he invested himself into those who would lead after him. Reading in 2 Timothy, it is fair to say as you read that book that Paul's actually passing his mantle on to Timothy to continue the work. Now, both Timothy and Titus were trained and tested and experienced servant leaders before Paul gave them the responsibility of selecting servant leadership in Ephesus and on the island of Crete. Now, Timothy, what we read, we can see that he had previous assignments in Thessalonica and in Corinth and in Philippi. Titus had assignments in Corinth and at least twice before on Crete before he was there with the letter that Paul had written to him. And Paul gives us a great example to show us that servant leadership should be trained. It needs to be invested in. And good servant leadership should be recognized. Timothy and Titus were both respected and trusted, experienced men of God who were younger, probably around the age of 30. But their assignments were quite different. Titus' assignment 
on the island of Crete was to establish leadership in a new congregation. When Paul was released from prison back in uh, Rome, which we read about in Acts 28 where he is in prison and he's continuing to work, he subsequently was released and he continued his ministry going back to Crete and preaching and establishing a new congregation there. Then he moved northward toward Macedonia, leaving Titus to finish the work that he had begun. As he moved through Ephesus, Paul most likely removed Hymenaeus and Alexander as leaders there, which we read about them in 1 Timothy 1.20. Leaving there, he assigned Timothy to straighten out the heresy that had crept into the Ephesian congregations. Over in Acts 19, we see Paul establishing the church there and even spent several years in Ephesus as the church was growing. From what we see in Acts, Paul's practice was to appoint leadership in congregations that he planted. So Paul put leaders in place in Ephesus that wound up causing the issues. And so he took the responsibility to remove them as well. Looking in Acts 20, 29, Paul speaking to the elders in Ephesus on his way to Jerusalem before he was arrested that that time. Paul knows that there's a growing problem that needed some intervention. In fact, he uses some pretty graphic metaphor, if you think about it. Savage wolves. What do you know about wolves? Cunning. Opportunistic. And on the hunt, what are they looking to do? They're looking to to feed themselves on one level, yes. But where's their focus? It's on them, right? Even from your own number, men will arise to distort the truth and draw disciples. Where? To them. Where's their focus? Where's the focus supposed to be? Just a thought. A recognized servant leader whose focus is more on themselves than it is on those he is supposed to be serving is a problem. It's an issue. Paul knew that these wolves would rise among their leadership, and it happened. Over in 2 Timothy 2, he uses another metaphor, which is gruesome. He says, their teaching spread like gangrene. You know what gangrene is? Do you? It's a gruesome metaphor. Something that is eating 
away, causing death and destruction in its path. Now today in modern medicine, you know, that's easy enough for us to deal with. But back then, even today, how is it doctors deal with gangrene? Do you know? Cut it off, right? This gangrene, they were talking about the resurrection had happened. Likely this is not Christ's resurrection. This is the, the resurrection of the church. You've already, that's already happened and you've missed it. This is also likely dealing with the rise of, of Gnosticism, um, Gnosticism really taught a separation between body and spirit, that, that the body was evil. Christ couldn't have come in the body. God wouldn't have gone in the body because the body is evil. Spirit is what is good. And that's the same thing with us. So, you see, we have this separation of body and spirit. And, in fact, when you think about it, it means as long as the spirit is holy, I can do anything with the body. Because it doesn't matter because the spirit is what is saved. In other words, it gets to a point where it's teaching that immorality is perfectly okay. Because that's part of the body. And you go another step, it's, it's also a way of saying that living a godly life, living a life of lordship just simply isn't necessary. As long as you believe the way the Gnostics do. Between 2 Timothy 2.17 and 1 Timothy 1.20, there are three specific names that are mentioned of elders who are not leading well. In Timothy's assignment, 1 Timothy 1.3, Paul says, as I urged you when I was, went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false teachings, false doctrine any longer. And over in 1 Timothy 5.22, in the context of this warning, we read, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands and do not share in the sins of of others, keep yourself pure. Now realize he's talking to a recognized spiritual leader. And Paul is reminding Timothy that how he lives and how he serves the group that he is sent to serve which includes cutting out the gang green. That he doesn't become part of it. But he remains true to what he knows is the faith and is Christ and is the good news. So Paul's intention and Timothy's instruction is very clear. Stop the heresy and appoint replacements and do it carefully. 
So the context of the guidelines between 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 are different. We've talked about that already over the last month. There are two different situations that are going on which call for a different emphasis and how they're looking for leadership. But they're given to help Timothy and Titus make wise choices for servant leaders and specifically for Timothy to replace heretics. The issue in Ephesus is really as close as Scripture comes to talking about the length of servant service of a recognized servant leader. And notice it's not based on age. It's not based on an arbitrary number of years, nor is it based on a popular vote. It's based on function. Are they function functioning as good servant leaders? Are they actively leading people towards Christ, towards the kingdom? You see, when servant leaders cease to function in that role, they should step down or be removed from recognized servant leadership. There are three criteria for removing a servant leader from that role. And they all come from Ephesus. They come from First and Second Timothy. There's three. And if you think about it, I think this covers all of them. One, gross immorality. Do I have to explain that any further? Remember, he's supposed to be a man who keeps covenant. Yes? Covenant-keeping man. A moral Failure. Two, a change of doctrinal understanding. And what Paul is talking about specifically is heresy. Now, one of the things about our movement is that we are to be coming back to the Bible. And where Scripture is very clear, what do we do? We do what Scripture says. And when there's a place for interpretation, what do we do? We allow for difference of opinion. But we do it in love. Yes? Always for the good of the other person. So we're not talking about getting mad and upset because somebody doesn't necessarily interpret something the way I do. What we're talking about is when somebody's going against Scripture. You with me? Can I get an amen? Okay. And three, I mentioned it just a second ago, they are no longer actively functioning in a servant leader capacity. And really, the way Paul is talking about it, if you are going to look at it scripturally, they're treating that servant leadership role as a position of authority. And they're trying to beef themselves up 
with their focus on them. A wolf. Treating servant leadership as a position of authority instead of as a function of service. Biblically, outside of that, outside of that, recognize servant leadership should continue to lead. And we should continue to support them and pray for them and give them over to be used by God. We're not required to like them. If they are serving God and serving them well, even though you may have a personality conflict, that's not a reason to remove them. It may be a reason to pray for your heart while you're praying for theirs. But I can tell you this, you can have a conflict with somebody and still respect them and still come alongside of them and still work with them as we're moving towards the kingdom if we're all keeping our focus on Christ. Okay, Eric, I hear what you're saying. I see it and all of that. But how does that relate to us here at ODCC? How, how are we supposed to do this in a practical sense? Well, what is biblical, we should continue to do. The Bible teaches that servant leadership should hold each other accountable in these three areas. It's a non-negotiable. And in fact... If there's an infringement, it shouldn't have to wait until the next voting cycle to hold somebody accountable. You know, it's not often that you will find leadership in this world that will self-regulate. And self-restrict. You think about it. Most of the leadership that you see in this world, they, they wind up passing laws that favor them. It's unusual to have a group of men who are willing to self-regulate when they're in leadership. But if you are listening to scripture and you're listening to the spirit, we all fall under the regulation of Christ. Amen? Those that are going to be and are presently recognized servant leaders here We're going to hold ourselves accountable to lead you by example and deed to bring this group into being a gospel-focused, actively recruiting, kingdom-growing, 
Jesus-focused, God-honoring, functioning body of disciple-making believers. And we are also, in that spirit, are going to establish a leadership covenant, which will be signed by the current elders, myself, any staff minister that comes on, any future leader that comes into recognized service within this body, we're going to establish a leadership covenant signed by all recognized servant leaders from this point on that if we are in violation of these three biblical mandates, we will willingly step down. Why? Because it's the right thing. How can we hold you accountable if we're not holding ourselves accountable? The men that are now in recognized servant leader elder roles are willing to limit themselves for the good of the gospel in this congregation by calling ourselves into a greater accountability to God and to each other and to you. And I'll tell you, this is not taken lightly. There's been much prayer, study, introspection, self-examination, humility, and mutual trust going into this, into making this commitment. Also, we need you to help make sure that we do a thorough job when bringing new individuals into recognized servant leader roles by upping your involvement in the selection process. We, you and I, we need to base our decisions for nominations on the biblical criterion. We must nominate those who are already functioning as servant leaders and have experience and have the heart to be a servant leader to that end today right now there are new nomination forms available on the sign up table out in the lobby they are there and they are purposefully designed to help you make recommendations based on the biblical criteria You're thinking of nominating someone? Fill out a form. Give us your reason as to why you think that person should be put into recognized servant leadership, be they elder or deacon. Give us your rationale. Make us work for it. Show us. Prayerfully consider any suggestions that for nomination that you make and fill out a separate form for each individual 
that you plan on nominating. So nominations are going to be open from today until January 2nd. Now, honestly, the time for voicing objections to a nominee really should be when they do the most good, which would be, bef- which would be before they're brought before the group for a confirmation vote. That is when your voice can be heard the loudest and will do the conversa- congregation, the Lord, the most good. Nominees under consideration will be announced on January 16th. A confirmation vote will be two weeks later, January 30th. Now, when a name is announced on the 16th, if you know of any biblically compelling reason why they should not be considered, go to an elder Go to me, let one of us know what the objection is so it can be investigated and resolved or, when appropriate, we stop the process right there. Do you hear what I just said? Instead of waiting for one vote to be canceled by 60, if you know of a biblically compelling reason Bring it to us. It may be rumor that gets squelched. It may be fact, and that person should not be put in leadership. But you see what I just did? Do you see what Randy and Scott are doing? Every person in here that is a member of this church and can vote, you can stop the process if you're the one that has the information. Not whether you like them or not. We're talking a biblically compelling reason. Okay? Now, you might be thinking, well, what if, what if something's discovered after they're affirmed by the group and after they're in a leadership role? What then? Well, Paul's addressing that very thing with Timothy. Over in 1 Timothy 5.19, he says, Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. Those who have sinned should be rebuked publicly so that the others may take warning, which is probably why Paul wrote in this letter to Timothy, both of them, that that he knew would be read to the group. He mentions by name Hymenaeus, Philetus, and Alexander and tells the group, they're heretics, don't follow them. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality. You're not the only one, Steve. (laughs) Partiality. Anybody know what that means? 
and without favoritism. Who are these witnesses? Well, specifically, I got three words for you. Do you know what they are? I don't know. Paul doesn't specify. However, most likely, they're from the congregation. They're people who know these men, that know what they're teaching, that know how they live their life. It could be another recognized servant leadership, leader, or even an outsider who can speak cogently to someone's character. All of those meet Paul's model that's there in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. But the principle is this. Anytime there is information that would call a servant leadership's role into question, we owe it to the congregation and to Christ to bring that information forward. Hebrews 13, 17 reminds us that recognized servant leaders serve as those who must give an account. Now, I can tell you the way I grew up. I grew up thinking that this meant that that they were accountable to God. They were going to have to give an account to God one day. And I believe that's true. Yet they are also accountable to you, the sheep of the fold, the congregation, We as servant leaders are responsible to lead you into a greater depth of spiritual understanding and to encourage you to work for Christ and to not forget that lordship is a lifestyle. So again, come to an elder or come to me as your minister, then let us know the objection so it can be investigated and resolved. And when appropriate, the leadership covenant that they signed before they took the role will be invoked. First Timothy 5.21 there says to do nothing out of favoritism. Do you know why that is? Because we are all equal at the foot of the cross. In the body of Christ, we are equals before the Lord. We have different talents. We have different abilities. We have different skills. We have different spiritual gifting. And we all need to use who God has made us to be, who his spirit has enhanced us to be for the glory of God. And we must hold each other accountable for doing just that. Serving God, introducing people to Christ, and changing eternity. I'm going to leave you with this. Writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 13, 18. As he finishes down this 
wonderful treatise of how Christ is prophet, priest, and king. The one we're to follow, the one the Jews have been waiting for. He comes down and says, those of us who are, who are trying to serve, he says, pray for us. Pray for us. We're not perfect, but we are committed. And we need all the prayer that we can get. Father God, I pray for the leaders, both recognized and not recognized, that are in this congregation. I pray for those that are, that are learning, that are being taught, that are seeking your truth. Seeking to get that word deep inside of them. So that is what comes out of them. I pray for those, Father, that are here that are on the fringe. That are still working to decide where their life's going to be. I pray for those of us, Father, who are convicted by your word that we need to be more than what we are and we need to have a life of lordship Father I pray for this community that as we draw closer to you, we will be such a light and such a beacon of your truth and your love and the hope that is ours through Christ. That we will change our neighbors, our neighborhood. That we will change this town. Use us for your glory. And it's Jesus' name in which we pray. Amen. Amen. We sang earlier, it is well with my soul. One of the best verses in all of Christendom is the third verse of that song. Do you remember it? My sin, oh the bliss of this wonderful thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. Some of you have had that burden lifted off of you. Some of you may still be longing for that peace that can only come when Christ is at the center of your life. And he is our king, and he's forgiven us. That peace can be yours today. Won't you come as we stand and as we sing?